0: Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard University. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Margaret Lewis, professor of law at Seton Hall University, who researches law and criminal justice in mainland China and Taiwan. Professor Lewis received her JD from the New York University School of Law and her bachelor's from Columbia University. She's practiced law in New York and California, and was recently a Public Intellectuals Program Fellow with the National Committee on US-China Relations. She's the author with Jerome Cohen of the book, Challenge to China, how Taiwan abolished its version of re-education through labor. And she's a renowned expert on Taiwanese law and politics. Professor Margaret Lewis, welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. Thank you. So your talk at the Fairbanks Center is entitled Why Law Matters in Taiwan. Why did you pick this title and why wouldn't law matter in Taiwan?
1: It's first uh, a play on the title of the great book by Shelley Rigger, Why Taiwan Matters, because so much I think of uh, doing Taiwan studies is explaining to people why Taiwan is important, not just to people who are living there, but for people outside of Taiwan. And so my point as a legal scholar is it's not just that Taiwan matters, but when you look within Taiwan and you see how uh, many issues there are right now bubbling up in society, that law is a, a critical component of that discussion.
0: So, if anything, it's a call to go beyond the black box of the state and actually look at what's happening domestically in Taiwan.
1: Exactly. We have a very important presidential election coming up in January 2020. Uh, we had important uh, local elections just this uh, last November. And, and of course, uh, cross-strait relations, international uh, relations were a component of those. But a lot of what people care about is their day-to-day existence, you know, getting their kids to school going to their jobs, buying groceries, where does their energy come from? And and these are local issues.
0: So is there such a thing as Taiwan law? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, and and I, and I the the really interesting thing here from a kind of more wonky uh, legal aspect is the Constitution is still the Republic of China Constitution. If you go to Taiwan and you happen to be there on October 10th, you will be there for the big celebration of Double Ten Day, uh, which celebrates the founding of the Republic of China. Uh, years are still counted from that day, so you always have to Josh or E have to add eleven on to the official. Uh, government date to figure out what year it is in, in the more standard calculation. So the Republic of China is still very much important to the basis of uh, the legal system. And you don't have laws emanating from the government of Taiwan. You'll have sometimes agreements signed by the Republic of China, parentheses, Taiwan. Uh, but uh, it's, it's Taiwan itself is, it's an island, um, it's a concept, but it's not a, a government that issues legal proclamations in the name of Taiwan itself.
0: There seems to be a distinction uh, in sort of casual use, like we've seen more references to Taiwan under the current DPP government than we had before under Ma Zhou, for example. Is there an attempt to shift the dialogue away from Republic of China in sort of common parlance and towards Taiwan?
1: Yeah, and I, I think when I went to Taiwan in uh, 2017 to spend a year on a Fulbright at National Taiwan University, I went having having spent time in Taiwan before, uh, but not having lived there for an extended period of time of time. And, and one thing I learned is you you cannot do anything with uh, studying Taiwan without coming back to the issue of identity. And, and what does it mean? What is this of uh, being Taiwanese or being Chinese? Is that ethnicity? Is that national identity? And there's no doubt that this idea of being a Taiwan of being Taiwanese, is um, very much something that is, is felt by the people who live there. Uh, the question is how much they also identify as being Chinese and again, how much of that is um, an ethnic issue as compared with uh, a relationship with a sovereign state. When you look at the government rhetoric, so for example, there was a a big legal reform conference that uh, Tsai Ing-wen called shortly after she became president. And when you look at the report coming out of that, the only time the Republic of China is mentioned in this report is for the years and uh, for the Republic of China constitution, but everything else is about Taiwan. Uh, And so there is very much this idea that you still have this entity of the Republic of China. That is the entity with which I think we're at 16 now. Uh, States have formal diplomatic relations and the Holy See. Uh, But the real conversation is about Taiwan.
0: As you uh, mentioned, the importance of identity. We've just published a new book with the Asia Center Press here called Becoming Taiwanese Ethnogenesis in a Colonial City 1800s to 1950s by Evan Dawley that is now available for sale. The Asia Center Press will be very happy that I have plugged... That new book
1: and, and he's fantastic and he's really interesting work because I've, I've spoken with him because I'm more interested in, in contemporary issues of identity but you can't just separate that from this very complex history of Taiwan and and how uh, you look back at the influence of the Japanese colonial period which was hugely influential also on the legal system uh, all the way back to this um, you know the importance of the indigenous peoples and 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 their now current uh, push to try to create greater recognition and greater rights. There's historical reasons for so much of this.
0: And I guess a lot of these issues are more politicized under a DPP government than they would be under a KMT government. Um, We've seen under saying one, that there's been more emphasis on questions of indigenous rights, um, the idea of transitional justice, people talking about same-sex marriage. How does legal reform and transitional justice Create that identity.
1: Yeah, and, and transitional justice, when that said, you know, the, the immediate thing people think of is transitional justice as dealing with the authoritarian period. That you had this time of martial law beginning in the late 1940s and stretching all the way to 1987. And I think a lot of at least Americans are very surprised when I tell them that because uh, Chiang Kai-shek and did a fantastic job of PR and and promoting Taiwan as free China, but really just not communist China. And and because of the uh, political realities of that period, that he got a fairly free pass to engage in extremely repressive and harsh practices. And so you've only had since 1987 that we get the end of martial law. And so there's this massive chunk of time and a lot of people who are still alive today, or at least people who are the children of people who suffered during that period. So how do you deal with just Getting information, first of all, of what happened to relatives uh, during that time period. Uh, questions about should there be individual responsibility for wrongs? And the more time that passes, the, the less important that is just because of that generation is dying out of those who are actually engaged in the torture and the disappearances. Issues of money, this is hugely important. KMT made a lot of money during that time. And not just the KMT directly, but uh, associations closely affiliated, the women's groups associated with the KMT. Are those ill-gotten? and gains that should be removed at this point from their coffers. Uh, and then also this you know huge issue of, of symbolism. What do you do with Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall? What do you do with all of these statues? And so one of the things is there's actually a park in Taiwan where a bunch of these statues have been put. I want to go. Because uh, on the one hand, this is Taiwan's history, and so you don't want to erase it. But uh, it, of course, is, is fraught. So there's that aspect of transitional justice. But as you mentioned, there's also this issue about uh, the indigenous peoples and and their rights. And Tsai Ing-wen in 2016 was the first president to issue an apology. There's been uh, mixed reviews about how she's followed up since then and her government in acting on protecting indigenous rights. But you do have uh, in the legal system, for example, indigenous courts now, which trying to have uh, judges who are trained uh, to deal with cases involving indigenous peoples, like hunting rights, um, involving some of the more uh, indigenous practices and taking those into account. Um, There's some really interesting work going on studying those courts right now. And you also have transitional justice issues going back to the Japanese uh, colonial period. For that too, there's a, if you're, for, for the travel advice, um, if anyone's in Taipei, there's a wonderful museum on Di Hwa-jie on Dihua Street called the Ama Museum. And it's uh, specifically made to uh, have the oral histories and other stories and 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 documentation of Taiwanese women who were comfort women, were sexual slaves during World War II. But more generally, the museum also deals with uh, sexual violence and particularly in wartime. And it's, uh, it's a really, it's a powerful museum Museum, and and it's well worth a visit.
0: And I guess in many ways, this ties in with a lot of contemporary topics that people are talking about in American politics to do with reparations. Um, That's a big part of the the sort of 2020 presidential campaign for some of the candidates. Uh, The idea of what do you do with statues Mm -hmm. of people from the past? How do you deal with that past? Um, And so I guess in some ways, Taiwan presents an alternate. Experience of these questions in in a different context, the United States.
1: Yeah, and I I think with Taiwan, you know, sort of what what is Taiwan today? Where is it going? You, you can't figure that out without grappling with this this complex history. In some ways, Taiwan is a. a Pretty diverse society. You know, you have, as I said, you know, a small group, but an interesting and, and an important group of real indigenous peoples who go back thousands of years. And then you had the uh, immigrants who came over from mainland China hundreds of years ago, and the Ben Shengren, and they were there before the 1940s. And then, of course, the group that came over a couple million with Chiang Kai shek and the KMT in the late 40s. Uh, you get now more recent immigrants, whether they be temporary or more permanent immigrants coming from Southeast Asia, intermarriage a push now to try to bring in more international uh, representation from all over the world, trying to uh, find ways to incentivize highly educated people from US, Europe. So it's, it's become, um, well, you know, not um, maybe as diverse as when I walked down the streets of Manhattan, but it, it still, I think, is a more diverse place than many people recognize who have not
0: spent time there. I have a slightly odd question for you. What are dinosaur judges? Yes,
1: I love this Kong Long Fa Guan. And uh, I, when I first heard this, this is one of those times you're like, is my Chinese failing me? You know, no. And no, like, we meant dinosaur judges. And uh, and I, you know, been to protests on the streets of Taipei where people are literally dressed up in full-on Jurassic Park wear. And uh, the idea there is, it's obviously a criticism. This is not something that the judges say about themselves. That, uh, and it's not as much about the. Age of the judges. There, there are certainly judges who are older and uh, and have you know, been in uh, the positions for for decades and, and seen as sort of vestiges of the authoritarian era. But more that the the judges are seen as being out of touch with. Uh, sort the person on the street. And this has a lot to do with the way that judges are selected. Uh, Taiwan still a very exam-focused system. You still have the Examination UN, a branch of the government focused on exams. This idea that you achieve and you get these very selective posts by undergoing an extremely rigorous and just grueling examination process. And, and what that means for being a judge is you go from usually a fairly elite law school to being uh, Than a judicial trainee in a fairly cloistered setting to being on the bench. So this idea that judges are from another era—they don't get it. And the other criticism you hear sometimes of judges is that they're baby judges, or this wah wah because they haven't been out being lawyers, you know, being business people, and then put on the bench. So again, this are you out of touch, which has led to a push to see about whether there should be some more citizen participation actually in uh, the decision-making process for serious criminal. Cases.
0: Is there an ideological dimension to the dinosaur judges? Are they considered to be too one way or another compared to the citizens?
1: In some ways, they're just seeing as being kind of, I think conservative and they don't know what's happening. But on the other hand, um, there's the criticism the judges get too, is that they're in fact too protective of human rights and they're too lenient on their sentencing. And the death penalty is still used in Taiwan. It's infrequently, but there has been an execution under Tsai's government and there's over 40 people still in death row. So there's still this strong retributive atmosphere. So I think judges feel like they can't win. Uh, And you look at the constitutional court, which in many ways, is a pretty conservative body. These are mostly you know, legal academics, people who have been career judges. And, and yet they came out in 2017 with this ruling saying that the ROC constitution demanded same-sex marriage. And, and there's 15 judges. One recused himself because of a personal relationship with a, a member of the legislature who herself was very pro-marriage equality, but they only had one pure descent and one partial descent. So that was a, a really amazing sense of cohesion amongst these judges saying that you needed to have same-sex marriage, which was very progressive.
0: Uh, we're currently recording this in, in May 2019. And uh, later this month, uh, that law will come into effect and same-sex marriage will uh, make Taiwan the first country in Asia to have same-sex marriage, which they are really playing up as a big PR campaign of uh, look how progressive we are, Um, we often see that countries will legislate uh, in favour of same-sex marriage more as a signal to the international community than domestically in some ways. It also, I guess, plays into this question of dinosaur judges, because there's been quite a lot of pushback to the same-sex marriage law. Um, and there was a, a referendum in the, uh, part of the local elections last year uh, where it was non-binding, but same-sex marriage was sort of rejected by the majority of voters. Um, how is this playing up in domestic Taiwanese politics?
1: And one of the interesting things as of today, I just I feel like I should check the news before I say anything, because this is a you know, moving target, but that there there is no law going into effect on May 24th. And, and that's the real question, because what the constitutional court did, and they, they've done this in other cases in the past too, it's not unique, is essentially give the legislature a runway. They said, okay, you have two years from the date of our ruling saying that you need to have same-sex marriage. And right now, the civil code foundational law is in terms of a man and a woman. You have two years to figure it out, legislature, You know, get it together. And this is, as you said, a highly contentious issue. And under the constitutional rights, you need to have same-sex marriage. But what the court didn't say is the exact legal mechanism to make that happen. So there were choices. Do you actually revise the civil code itself and make it so it's not gender-specific, which I think would be the preferred result from some of the, the more pro-marriage equality camps, do you create a separate law, kind of a sense of separate but equal, which is problematic as far as saying, well, then it's not real marriage. Uh, and that seems to have been kind of the compromise position that the Thai government has tried to pursue. They had a draft law, but that hasn't been enacted. And then when you had this referendum in the following, was like a couple referenda, there, these were non-binding because they couldn't change the constitutional ruling. But it was more, I think, of a a litmus test of where the population was. And, of course, the legislature is is very keen in understanding that because they have their elections coming up in January 2020 as well. You know, they're they're the people who actually have to go out and get the votes. What happened there was the population saying, we're not we're not so sure about this same sex marriage. And and so now you've got this real tension of uh, you know some very progressive forces. You have the largest gay pride parade in Asia, in Taiwan. President Tsai has marched in it. Yeah. Then you have these very conservative, more traditional forces. And so as an American, this, this feels familiar. It's not just about marriage. I mean, some people... Get married just because they want to get married. But a lot of people get married in part because they want to have a family, right? They want to have kids. And that gets even more complicated because the constitutional court ruling said nothing about children. Uh, there's a surrogacy. Uh, last I heard is still not legal in Taiwan. Uh, there's real issues about use of assisted reproductive technology. And um, for example, how sperm donors might or might not have ability to later find out um, if they actually have children. And there's this whole host of legal issues that haven't been fleshed out. So the LGBT community that's interested in, well, how do we have families under this legal structure is, is grappling with some very, very emotional and complicated issues.
0: Yeah. And I will say it's not the uh, the first time that same-sex marriage has been passed uh, either by a court or a legislature and then rejected in a national referendum. The same thing happened in Slovenia mm. um, a few years ago. So it also, I think, speaks to this tension between you know, sort of an elite political class and then what people not of that elite class might feel is sort of a change in the society that's happening too quickly.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and you see separation of powers and this idea that you do very much have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch all playing a really important role here and different roles. And and the judges, they're saying our role is to interpret the constitution. They were very cognizant that this was a very uh, uh delicate and uh, contentious issue uh, one thing that was interesting even about the way the decision was made is the Constitutional court often doesn't even have an oral hearing they often just decide based on the written submissions they called in experts professors from National Taiwan University others they had a press conference they issued a press release they actually you know, uh, broadcast uh, this oral hearing and and so there there was a real recognition that this was not a decision that should be made behind closed doors And I think this idea of greater transparency and clarity and participation are these kind of foundational principles that are increasingly being infused into the legal system.
0: You mentioned that you yourself have attended protests in Taiwan as sort of an observer, and protests seem to be an enduring feature of uh, the post authoritarian Taiwanese political scene. Um, and most recently, I'm sure uh, listeners will be aware of the Sunflower Movement that kicked off in 2014, where a lot of students sort of took over the physical building of the legislative UN. And so the, the idea of the Sunflower Movement was for the Ma Ying government to cancel a planned trade agreement with mainland China um, in a move that a lot of uh, supporters of the Sunflower Movement thought would bring Taiwan and the mainland closer together in a way that they did not want to see. How are recent protests in Taiwan dealing with or struggling with this legacy of protest?
1: Yeah, and I think when you look at Taiwan, it's it's hard to spend any time there and not run across some kind of protest. If nothing else, it's kind of fun to, you know, congruent and all. And it's like, what's going on here? And and as someone who has spent uh, you know, my early career and I continue to spend time working on China, I just get excited that there is a protest. So when I was in Taiwan in the, when I first got there in the fall late summer of 2017, uh, it was when the Li Joe case was heating up. And so here we have a, a Taiwanese citizen who was uh, involved in peaceful conversations with uh, people in the mainland about democracy and human rights and had had Facebook posts and other communications. And when he was physically present in mainland China, was um, arrested, subsequently charged and convicted for subversion, and is now serving a five-year sentence. This raised concern not it wasn't like widespread if I had gone and asked sort of every kind of person on the street, they would know. But certainly there was a lot of concern in Taiwan about his fate. And in particular, because of his conviction being for what looked like free speech. So I went to a protest and it was a lovely day in a park in Taiwan. And, and they had their signs to free Li Manjia, And they had a drone taking photos from above. And, and there were some police standing by. And, and so I went and talked to the police. And I'm like, so how how is it being a police officer with this protest? Like, oh, this one's easy. They're just taking photos. You know, we're used to much more kind of raucous. But this idea that the police were doing exactly what they should be doing. There was a protest. They were in the vicinity to make sure if anything needed to be dealt with. But and and that was, you know, a very peaceful protest. You know, more recently and other times you've had actual confrontations between the police and protesters, uh, concerns about police using too much force against those protesters. Uh, you've had um, very big protests, for example, the pension reforms, illicit labor law reforms, uh, nuclear energy, um, all these different issues. And I see the protests as complementary to the more sort of dry legal debates going on about what should the laws look like, that this is the public expression of, of some of those more esoteric debates going on. And, and one thing too, that's when you look back, you had the sunflower before that, you had the wild strawberry protests, wild lily, They all of these great names. And uh, the wild lily protest is is particularly interesting uh, today. And, and here we are in May of 2019, because that was in 1990. So shortly after uh, the Tiananmen protests and massacre across the strait, and there with the wild lily, you had, again, it was a student-led protest, took over a massive, one of the most important public space. You know, in Taipei. It could have gone south. It was after martial law, but it was still when there was a transition period where there was still quite a bit of power concentrated in uh, the government. But the protesters were welcomed into the presidential palace. And in fact, uh, the KMT acceded to a lot of their demands. So you sort of see history can cut different directions. And that was uh, a critical juncture and moving towards more of a representative democracy that reflected the reality. That Taiwan really only controlled the island of Taiwan and some of the you know, small outlying islands like Oregon and the Pescadores and, and no longer should have representation for like Sichuan.
0: Yeah. In January 2020, we have a presidential election in Taiwan, the same year as the US presidential election, albeit a few months earlier. Um, and we've had a flavor of the sort of current political mood in Taiwan based on the local elections last year. In the 2020 election, it seems like we have a sort of smorgasbord of candidates. And um, Tsai Ing-wen is running for re-election uh, with the DPP party. But we've seen some real sort of characters flare up in this election. Who are some of the main players and what are they sort of standing for?
1: Yeah, and it's it's a crowded field. It's not not as crowded as the democratic field in the U.S. I don't think we're up to 20. Uh, but there's also in Taiwan, there's a, a group of actually declared candidates. And then there's a group of sort of in the wings, putting their toe in the water. Uh, but on the DPP side, Tsai Ing-wen, yes, she is the incumbent. She will run again. Um, that's that's clear. But you also have uh, William Lai, uh, Lai ching who was her premier for a little over a year. Uh, he stepped down. He was uh, stopping premier in January of this year. And uh, he's also DPP. And he has generally a more pro-independence, deeper green, is not as centrist as as Silent Wen is. And so that's interesting as far as how much that might pull her deeper green uh, for the primaries. And then she'd have to try to move back more towards the center. So there is the intra-DPP tensions, which I can't help but think the KMT is happy about because the more that you have that infighting within the DPP, the more vulnerable it makes them. Uh, You also then have on uh, the independent side, uh, the mayor of Taipei, uh, Mayor and he uh, is an independent, um, but he tends to pull people away from the DPP. So, if he decides one, he hasn't declared, but that could be another factor because it's who gets more votes. You could have a DPP candidate, a KMT candidate and one or more independent candidates. On the KMT side, yeah, it's really, it's not your grandfather's KMT anymore. And, and sort of the traditional deep blue Maying Joe candidates, you have some of that there. So you have Eric... Uh, Jew, who lost to Ing-wen in the last election. And so he's in the mix, and he would be more, I think, of the traditional KMT. But then you throw in there Terry Goh, founder of Foxconn, who is this you know, Trump-esque character. He's a businessman. He's not a politician by training. He's the wealthiest person in Taiwan. He puts himself out there as being different and brash, and he's a problematic character in many ways, You know, partially because he uh, does have such strong personal, financial, investment in China that you have to wonder to what extent he can separate out his business from the politics of what's best for Taiwan. Uh, speaking particularly as a woman, uh, he has made comments to female members of the legislative UN and others that are you know, flat out misogynistic. So I think you know there's a number of reasons that he's a challenging individual to think of being in this delicate position of being president. And then you add on to that, the mayor of Kaohsiung, uh, Han Guoyu, who has not Declared, but he's taken this position of if the KMT can't figure this out, I will graciously step in as a compromise candidate. Essentially, he hasn't ruled out the possibility of coming in, and he came on the scene very quickly. He's KMT, but again, he's not traditional He's Much more of this populist um, personality, getting tremendous amount of airtime on Taiwanese TV. And he wasn't even expected to win uh, mayor. And yeah, he did. And he is on a much more pro-economic integration with the mainland, seeing as he was there actually visiting, um, which was interesting, and also went to Hong Kong and tries to play this as I'm just here selling our mangoes it's about economics. But I, I think it's it's unrealistic to say you can just talk about economics without talking about everything that comes with that.
0: Money is politics.
1: Money is politics. Yeah.
0: Yes. And uh, in fact, uh, both Mayor Ku of Taipei and Mayor Han of Kaohsiung uh, recently visited the Fairbank Centre to give closed-door meetings. uh, so I'm sure the election will be very interesting in 2020.
1: And I always say I want people to pay attention to Taiwan because I think it's important. But at the same time, I don't want Taiwan to be on the front pages of The New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, because that's probably not good for Taiwan. If if Taiwan's on the front page, it's usually because of some level of crisis. And I think for so long, you know, we've had this status quo, which is this Uneasy, but yet it's worked, unresolved question of cross-strait relations. And I hope that can continue because, uh, you know, right now I think the status quo is essentially the best that Tsai um, and her government and, can
0: hope for. So you're trained as a legal scholar. There are relatively few people in the United States who do both legal studies and China or Taiwan. How does studying Taiwan help change your approach to the field of legal studies here in the United States?
1: We're a small group, but we're a great group. There are, you know, a number of law schools that have someone who who writes and and studies China. Very few who who do work on Taiwan. But we also all of us teach other things as well. I teach U.S. criminal law, criminal procedure. Other friends who teach constitutional law, and so we're which in some ways is great because it keeps us integrated with our U.S. focused colleagues. And and I think part of our advantage is to bring a comparative perspective, which you need to then understand your own legal system. But uh, in general. Law, Law schools don't do much with area studies, and in fact, that seems to be kind of a you know why would we need an area studies person? And and that is, I think, uh, not limited to law schools, but just area studies in, in general has has been disfavored in recent years, which I, I think is a mistake. Whether you're doing sociology or law or. Political science, you need to understand the place. And, and, and that requires a really deep appreciation. And so I was just in March at the Association for Asian Studies, which is one of my favorite conferences because I get to hang out with the historians and the people who are doing, you know, yeah, gender studies and all these different areas which intersect with laws. There's people, for example, uh, Mary Gallagher at Michigan, who you know, she's she's not a lawyer, but she writes about labor law. And Rio Sada, who he Does have a law degree, but he's really now he's a sociologist. That's how he identifies himself. But we we include him in our in our legal world. So I think it's a it's a pretty inclusive group as far as realizing that you need to be interdisciplinary to understand law. And that goes for both Taiwan and for China and and probably for most countries out there.
0: And I know a lot of our uh, listeners will either be in the Regional Studies East Asia program here at Harvard University or graduates of it, and we'll be thrilled to hear that you are. Saying regional studies is definitely something we should pay more attention to.
1: And maybe I'm just brainwashed. I was an East Asian studies major at Columbia and 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 my teacher was Ted DeBerry, who I just am um, just love to pieces. And, and so I grew, you know, up sort of with this idea that you need to understand the context. I'm involved with the National Committee on US China Relations public intellectual program. And one of the great things about that program is, is recognizing that uh, as people have become Become more specialized in part because of the pressures of getting tenure that we become siloed. You know, stovepipe, pick your tone, your cylindrical object, but we, we don't reach out across disciplines as much as I think prior generations did. In April, I wrote a piece with uh, Jeff Wasserstrom and, and, and UC Irvine. And and he's a historian. It was fantastic because you know, it brings a very different perspective to similar events that I've studied from a legal perspective. And I think that kind of collaboration is really enriching for the field.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's a, a valid point you raised that we talk a lot about multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary research, but actually, the realities often of the academy mean that people have to forefront a certain discipline. Um, one of our professors here, for example, is very candid in her. Uh, even though she studies East Asia, she says, I am of my discipline first and I study East Asia second, mm-hmm. and that's how I get by in the academy. Part of that
1: is once people do get tenure, I think they're in a position more to say these norms that are becoming um, a little bit, I think, too entrenched should be at least reevaluated. And, and there's good reasons too, for having people who, for example, if you're poli-sci to understand the, the quantitative methods that are being used, And but it's not an either or. I think you can have that complementarity.
0: Um, so to finish up, we have a quick fire round. It's called the Fairbank Five.
1: Do I get points or money or something for that?
0: Uh, no whammies. <laughs> <laughs> so our first question is, what is your favorite Chinese food?
1: Oh favorite Chinese food. well then we're talking about Taiwan oh,
0: Taiwanese food.
1: I I have to go with mango shaved ice because it is I mean not only when it's you know 100 degrees Fahrenheit and you're it's humid it's just so refreshing but it's also the main reason my children want to go back to Taiwan is that they know that we're gonna get you know, and this is fresh mangoes Taiwanese mangoes and you get a mango in the US and it is it shouldn't really be called most of the time a mango it's not the same thing. <laughs>
0: Um, your favorite place in China or Taiwan
1: Taiwan's fun to travel around because it isn't that big so you can see a lot of things uh, I really uh, recommend going to uh, Ali Shan uh, in central Taiwan it is a Shan it's a mountain and it feels a little bit like the Northern California redwoods uh, I went to high school in Portland Oregon have Pacific Northwest highs and being up in the mountains with these you know huge trees and there's this cute little train again that was a big draw for the the young kid said, but I, I think that a lot of times people focus on the coast when they go to Taiwan and they don't go to the interior and it's uh, not easy to access. There are trains, but the drive is a little harrowing, uh, but it's it's worth the effort.
0: I feel like you should uh, sort of do a, a, child's, a child-friendly guide to tourism in Taiwan.
1: I, I have spent a lot of time, I'm, all, I'm talking to friends who are saying, I'm going to Taiwan with kids. I'm like, it's great, you know, but there are always, there's tips and tricks.
0: Yeah. Um, a saying in Chinese that sort of encapsulates a feeling you have about the region.
1: I think one phrase in, in Chinese that I've always thought was interesting was the uh, that you can break the lotus root, but strands remained. And this idea about romantic relationships that, you know, if you, because if you do have a fresh lotus root, it does have this kind of fibrous strands that when you break it, they connect. And that even though you break off a relationship, there might still be some lingering emotions. But I think it's interesting thinking of that in the context of cross-straight relations, because there, you know, you still, you have all these ties, personal ties, historical ties, economic ties, and it's just, it's complicated.
0: It's complicated. That's the relationship status. It's complicated. Um, a book that you've recently read uh, on China or Taiwan that you would recommend?
1: As I said, like I think if you want the, the primer on what's going on in Taiwan, someone's going and they're like, I just want to understand the context. I think Shelley Rigger's work is fantastic. One book that I recommend when people are going is sort of their plain reading is a novel called Green Island by Shana Young Ryan. And Green Island, of course, refers to Ludal, this little island off the East Coast that became infamous as where uh, hooligans, the Liomang and political prisoners were sent during the authoritarian era. It's since uh, turned into a place that is Lovely tourist destination. It has a museum uh, that is addressing uh, the human rights violations of that era. But the novel uh traces a family that it starts with uh the around the time of the 228, um, the February 28th, 1947 incident where uh, a woman selling cigarettes was uh beat up, you know, by the KMT forces. This then let loose a lot of tensions that had um already built up from the people who were already in Taiwan. Um, population and then the incoming KMT and uh, brought in these decades of the white terror. So it follows a family that is a, a, a Ben Shengren, a Taiwanese family, through this 40, 50 years. And one thing that's uh, I like is it's got you know a pretty good description of the historical events, but more than that it, it shows the, you know, the emotional toll on people who were living under that constant stress and it does so from the perspective of a female protagonist. And it also connects to the U.S. and how you had Taiwanese who had come to the U.S. but they still didn't feel safe, which was clear from, I mean, the Henry Leo murder in San Francisco in the early '80s, that you had a, a dissident population that felt threatened even when they were within the borders of the U.S. So it's it's a it's a really um, a powerful a, a good read.
0: And then our final question is: a class that you have either taken or taught uh, that changed your thinking about China or Taiwan in some way.
1: Thinking of you know Columbia, I got to. I'm going to go back to, oh, way back, way back to uh, 1990s, taking East Asian humanities as an undergrad at Columbia, reading the you know, Confucius and Mencius and the Neo Confucians, and it was an East Asian course, so we also read the, from Japan and Tale Genji. And, uh, but I, I I really appreciate uh, digging into that history. I was I was just reading on the uh, China Channel the review of a uh, exhibit right now in DC. On empresses that Toby Meyer Fung, uh historian at Johns Hopkins, was writing, and she's great. And this is in the Los Angeles
0: Review of Books, Chinese child,
1: yeah, the the larb, and uh, the the review itself is is worth reading. But now I, I really want to get there when the exhibit is going on and and so i think that's really fun is to as much as i'm a lawyer dealing with contemporary issues is not losing sight of of that you know humanitarian humanities background of the
0: strands of the lotus there it is history well thank you so much for being with us today
1: thank you for having me
0: don't forget to subscribe to the harvard on china podcast on itunes soundcloud stitcher Podbean, or wherever you get your rss feed